This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Manuel Gomez yawned and rubbed the sleep from his eyes. He hated making early morning field checks around his cattle ranch. He rarely had any problems. His animals were in good health and predators weren't a major issue. But as Manuel drove through the fields, he spotted one of his cows lying on its side. It wasn't moving. Manuel sighed. It looked like today was going to be one of those days. Manuel took two steps out of the car and then reeled back, gagging at the sight of the cow's body. It was immediately clear to him that the cow had definitely not died from natural causes. There was a perfect circular gash where the cow's genitalia should be. Even weirder, there was no blood coming from the wound. Manuel knew this couldn't be the work of predators. They would have eviscerated the cow. This wound was impossibly precise. In all his years as a cattle rancher, Manuel had never seen anything like it. He was certain that someone had mutilated his cow. Manuel scanned the landscape. He didn't see any sign of the culprits. But that's because he was looking in the wrong place. He should have been looking up. Are we alone? Have we been alone? Will we be alone? Stories of alien visitation have been ingrained in human history. Alien life may not be confirmed, but our obsession with it can't be ignored. Welcome to Extraterrestrial on the ParCast Network. I'm Tim. And I'm Bill. Every Tuesday, we visit the marvelous and strange stories about our encounters with beings from another world. We're aware that some of these tales may seem completely unbelievable. Others may seem all too real. But these stories shed light on human nature, human beliefs, and human psychology. And each story has garnered hundreds, if not millions, of true believers. And for that reason, we think they're worth exploring. Welcome to the first of two episodes on Dulce Base, a supposed secret installation outside of Dulce, New Mexico, that some believe is jointly operated by humans and aliens. This week, we'll follow the stories of Highway Patrol Officer Gabe Valdez and Albuquerque scientist Paul Benowitz as their investigations into mysterious cattle mutilations led them down a dark rabbit hole of aliens, UFOs, and vast government conspiracies. 
Next week, we'll continue the story of their investigations and uncover the shocking truth of what was really happening at Dulce. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. On June 13th, 1976, New Mexico State Police Officer Gabe Valdez received a phone call that would change his life forever. The call was from rancher and store owner Manuel Gomez. He had a major problem on his hands. Valdez said he'd head right over. When Valdez arrived at the scene, the situation was just as bizarre as Manuel had promised. Valdez had seen a lot in his years as a police officer, but this was particularly gruesome. Manuel's cow had been horrifically mutilated. Upon closer inspection, Valdez saw that the cow was missing its genitalia, left ear, tongue, udder, and rectum. They all seemed to have been removed with surgical precision. Despite the gashes covering the cow's body, there was no trace of blood. Valdez also found what looked to be a puncture mark from a large needle on the cow's lower chest. Manuel was confused. When he had found the cow the day before, only the genitalia had been missing. Had someone come in the night to finish the job? Despite the gruesome circumstances, Officer Valdez couldn't help but feel a sense of excitement. He was getting tired of constantly dealing with bar fights, car accidents, and petty theft. This was a case, a real case, and he was determined to crack it. Valdez racked his brain for any ideas. He remembered that he had recently received several reports from locals who had seen strange lights flying in the sky at night. The lights didn't move like that of an airplane or helicopter and were generally spotted around the mountains of Mundo Ridge, not far from Manuel's ranch. Valdez wondered if these lights were somehow related to the cattle mutilation. He decided it was as good of a theory as any. Little did Valdez know, cattle mutilation cases were about to crop up all over the state. Over the next 16 months, Officer Valdez personally handled 23 more mutilation cases around Dulce and northern New Mexico. Each instance was accompanied by a sighting of these strange lights somewhere close by. But Valdez could never catch the culprits in action. Every time he arrived at the scene of a mutilation, the lights were long gone. The initial excitement Valdez had felt when he started investigating the mutilations began to fade. He was starting to get frustrated with his lack of progress. But just when Valdez started to give up hope, he got his first major break. One night in early 1978, Valdez got a call from Raleigh Tafoya, the police chief of the Hikaria Apache Nation. The Hikaria are a group of indigenous people in the extreme north of New Mexico. Their reservation comprises the majority of Dulce. Not surprisingly, four of Chief Tafoya's cows had been mutilated. 
Valdez gritted his teeth. These cases were starting to get old. He told Tafoya he'd come by in the morning. Tafoya insisted that Valdez needed to come now. Normally, the lights that accompanied the mutilations disappeared after a short while. But for whatever reason, they were still hovering nearby. Valdez ran out the door so fast that he almost forgot his badge and gun. A few minutes later, Valdez pulled up to Tafoya's house. Tafoya had called a few of his tribal police officers, and they were all watching the bright orange light slowly bob up and down in the distance. It was almost as if the orange light was daring them to come after it. Valdez wondered if he'd be walking into a trap. He decided it didn't matter. He wanted answers, and he was going to get them. Everyone jumped into their cars and sped toward the light. Valdez got on his radio and told the officers to turn off their headlights. If this was a trap, he didn't want whoever was behind it to see them coming. His heart thumped in his chest as they approached the light. He had waited for this moment for over two years. The mysterious aircraft loomed ahead of him, urging Valdez forward. But just as he was about to pass under it, the light winked out. He looked up. There was no sign of any vessel. Valdez smacked the steering wheel in anger. He had been so close. But then, suddenly, when he turned his car around, the light reappeared less than a mile away. The chase was still on. As Valdez floored the gas, he grabbed his radio and gave the Hikaria officers the light's position. But this was to no avail. The moment Valdez got close to the light, it disappeared again, and again, and again. It was as if the light was toying with them. Every time Valdez and the Hikaria officers would get close to it, it would seemingly disappear and pop up in a completely different location. As one of the other officers called out the light's latest location over the radio for what seemed like the millionth time, Valdez got an idea. He wondered if perhaps the aircraft shining the light was intercepting their radio chatter. He suggested to his fellow officers that they conduct the rest of their communications in Apache. Sure enough, the light was no longer able to evade its pursuers, and they were able to surround it near the gas buggy area, about 12 miles southwest of Dulce. Valdez and the tribal officers formed a perimeter around the light. He squinted as he tried to discern what the aircraft emitting the light looked like, but it was too bright. The only way to find out was to make the thing land. He got on the bullhorn and commanded the aircraft to land, but it stayed in the air, hovering between two massive pine trees. Valdez knew this could be his only chance to finally solve the cattle mutilation cases. If whoever was piloting this vessel wouldn't listen to reason, maybe they'd respond to force. Valdez got on the radio and ordered his fellow officers to shoot the craft out of the sky. It was useless. The aircraft just floated there, impervious to their bullets. Eventually, it just drifted away and disappeared into the night. And Valdez couldn't do anything about it. There was nothing left for the officers to do other than go home. As Valdez drove down the lonely desert highway, he cursed his impotence in the face of this mysterious adversary. 
Within a moment, he was filled with a sense of dread as his radio began to emit a high-pitched whine. Before he could move to shut it off, a bright light suddenly bathed his car from above. He looked up in time to see the mysterious ship pass directly overhead, almost as if it was taunting him. Valdez was now certain that the lights were connected to the mutilations. He was the lead law enforcement official on these cases. If the aircraft were singling him out, then that must have meant that they were afraid of what he would find in his investigation. Sitting in his car on the highway, he felt alone, vulnerable to whatever might be out there in the desert. If he was going to get to the bottom of this, he was going to need some help. 150 miles to the south, just outside of Albuquerque, a man named Paul Benowitz was struggling with the same adversary. In the summer of 1976, right around the time Valdez began investigating the cattle mutilations, Paul started seeing mysterious lights flying over a nearby Air Force base. As the owner of an electronics company called Thunder Scientific Labs, Paul worked frequently with the American military and organizations such as NASA. He was familiar with the flight patterns of traditional aircraft. And what he was seeing was anything but traditional. Paul wondered if the lights might be some kind of UFO. Despite his scientific background, Paul was inclined to believe in the paranormal and was a card-carrying member of a UFO organization called the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, or APRO. But like any good scientist, Paul decided to do some research before jumping to any conclusions. Paul was extremely skilled with electronics and was able to build a device that picked up radio transmissions coming from Kirtland Air Force Base, which was less than a mile from Paul's house. The base was one of the largest in the United States Air Force and conducted a wide range of operations from flight training to weapons testing. It was even the headquarters of the Air Force Nuclear Weapons Center. Which is to say, it was a prime candidate among ufologists as a possible source of UFO activity, both extraterrestrial and otherwise. The next time the lights appeared above the base, Paul scanned the various radio frequencies to see if he could pick up chatter. Much to Paul's astonishment, he did. It seemed like he had intercepted some sort of communication, but it wasn't in any language he recognized. It didn't even sound human. He pulled off his headphones and went back outside to look at the lights zooming over Kirtland Air Force Base. After what Paul had just heard, he was pretty sure that whoever was behind the lights wasn't of this world. And he suspected that they did not come in peace. Coming up. Officer Valdez and Paul Benowitz bring their investigations together. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. In June of 1978, Officer Gabe Valdez got yet another panicked phone call from cattle rancher Manuel Gomez. 
In the two years since Valdez started investigating the cattle mutilations, over a dozen cases had been at Manuel's ranch. The cattle mutilations were becoming a serious financial hardship for the ranchers whose cows were being slaughtered. Complaints came flooding into the office of U.S. Senator Harrison Schmidt of New Mexico. Senator Schmidt agreed that the problem was severe. He announced that he was organizing a conference on the mutilations that would be held at the Albuquerque Public Library on April 20, 1979. Officer Valdez was asked to speak at the event to relay his experiences investigating cattle mutilation cases. He agreed, although he wasn't sure what good it would do. He was beginning to wonder if catching whoever was behind the mutilations was even possible. But then, Valdez met Paul Benowitz, the engineer who had been monitoring the strange phenomena over Kirtland Air Force Base. In the time since Paul had first spotted the lights above the base, he had kept an eye out for any mention of them in the news. When Paul heard about the cattle mutilation connection, he decided to attend Senator Schmidt's conference. After hearing Officer Valdez speak about his mutilation investigations, Paul decided he needed to introduce himself. But Valdez, dressed in his crisp uniform, presented a very imposing figure. Paul was worried that Valdez wouldn't take him seriously. Paul quickly smoothed his hair down and went to introduce himself. He told Valdez that he had recorded video of lights similar to what Valdez had encountered. Paul believed that using the radio detector he had built, he could detect when they would appear. Valdez couldn't help but be a bit skeptical. It was hard to believe that this nervous, fidgety guy had made such an important breakthrough. But Valdez would take any lead he could get at this point. He promised to call Paul the next time he had a mutilation case. Shortly after the conference on cattle mutilation, the FBI awarded a $45,000 grant to a retired agent named Kenneth Rommel to investigate the phenomenon. During the year-long investigation, there were almost no mutilation cases in New Mexico. It was as if whoever was behind the slaughter knew that the public had caught on to them. But the lack of evidence didn't seem to bother Rommel. He seemed more interested in gathering materials from newspaper articles and conducting the investigation from his armchair. Officer Valdez and Manuel Gomez were eager to have him visit Dulce to view their evidence, but he never came. Rommel delivered his final report in June 1980. He concluded that there was nothing unnatural about the cattle mutilations. Rommel stated that the surgical cuts on the animals, when viewed carefully, were actually quite jagged and unrefined. And he said that predators commonly ate the organs that were removed from the cows. As for the lack of blood, he said it was common for blood to settle in the lower parts of a corpse, and that any blood that spilled on the ground was likely lapped up by scavengers. During the year that Rommel was conducting his investigation, Officer Valdez's life had become relatively normal again. Although he and Paul Benowitz chatted on the phone a few times, there weren't any new leads to pursue. On May 5, 1980, Valdez was sitting in his patrol car, bored out of his mind. He couldn't help but yearn for the days of mysterious mutilations and strange lights. Almost as if on cue, his dispatcher called him on the radio. They had a 1035 for him. Valdez jumped in his seat. 
A 1035 was police code for something extremely urgent and confidential. It was almost never used. Valdez called the police station and they told him a woman named Myrna Hansen had reported that she was abducted by a UFO. This was right down Valdez's alley. His mind immediately turned to Paul Benowitz. During their conversations, Paul had revealed that he thought the strange lights were coming from alien UFOs. Valdez didn't necessarily believe in aliens, but considering the strange nature of what was going on, he refused to take anything off the table. Valdez called Paul and asked him if he could offer any insights. Paul said he knew a professional psychologist who had worked with alien abductees before. He thought the doctor could help Myrna Hansen work through her memories. Myrna arrived in Albuquerque two days later with her eight-year-old son. They were joined by Professor Leo Sprinkle of the University of Wyoming, who believed hypnotic regression therapy would help Myrna recall the details of her abduction. Paul theorized that the aliens who had abducted Myrna were using radio signals to control her unconscious mind. He said that he could block the signals if they conducted the session in his car, which he would line with aluminum foil. Although Dr. Sprinkle was a believer in aliens himself, he was off-put by Paul's outlandish suggestion. However, the idea seemed to make Myrna more comfortable, so he agreed to conduct the hypnotherapy sessions in Paul's foil-wrapped car. Over the course of two grueling sessions, Myrna recalled the terrifying details of her abduction. One of the most vivid memories she had was of a cow getting transported onto the UFO with some sort of tractor beam. Myrna went on to tell Paul and Dr. Sprinkle that the aliens had transported her to an underground base. She remembered seeing human and animal body parts preserved in vats as the aliens carried her to an operating room. The last thing Myrna could recall was the aliens implanting a device in her that allowed them to monitor and control her thoughts. Dr. Sprinkle was fascinated with Myrna's story, although he remained cautious. As regular listeners of this podcast no doubt know by now, memories recalled during hypnotherapy aren't necessarily reliable. In fact, the events a person recalls during hypnotherapy can sometimes be delusions or ideas that someone else plants in their head. Case in point, Paul was convinced that aliens were somehow controlling Myrna's mind. But did she actually remember being implanted with something? Or did Paul's suggestions accidentally influence her recall? But Paul was convinced that everything Myrna recalled was true. He was incredibly intrigued by Myrna's reference to the underground alien base, which he thought could be located in a nearby cavern. After the first session's success, Paul, Myrna, and Dr. Sprinkle resolved to conduct another hypnotherapy session in a few weeks. Dr. Sprinkle returned to Albuquerque on June 3, 1980. He was excited to continue to help Myrna unlock her memories from the abduction. But when Paul opened his door, Dr. Sprinkle could see that something had drastically changed within him. His eyes were wild. His clothes were a rumpled mess. Even more concerning, Paul was heavily armed with a pistol on his hip and a rifle in his hand. 
Dr. Sprinkle reflexively took a step back, but Paul grabbed him. He whispered into Sprinkle's ear, It's not safe. They're watching us. With that, Paul pulled the terrified doctor into the house. His eyes darted around the property, making sure no one was watching them. Then he slammed the door. Coming up, Paul goes down the rabbit hole. And now back to the story. In the summer of 1980, New Mexico State Trooper Gabe Valdez came into contact with a woman named Myrna Hansen. Myrna claimed to have been abducted by a UFO. Valdez enlisted the help of ufologist Paul Benowitz, who in turn sought the hypnosis expertise of Dr. Leo Sprinkle. Paul, Myrna, and Dr. Sprinkle began conducting hypnotherapy sessions to help Myrna remember what had happened to her. But Paul's mental state was rapidly deteriorating. Although Dr. Sprinkle had been concerned by Paul's behavior during their first visit, he was shocked to see how much worse Paul had gotten. Paul's hygiene was non-existent, and he was armed with a rifle and pistol. He reassured Dr. Sprinkle that the guns weren't meant for him, but that did little to assuage the doctor's fears. The man was obviously paranoid. His paranoia was contagious and had spread to Myrna, who had remained his house guest since the last session. It was clear to Dr. Sprinkle that Myrna had barely slept in the last few weeks. She had trouble stringing more than a few coherent sentences together at a time and could barely concentrate on a conversation. The ensuing hypnotherapy session was tense and strained. Myrna struggled to remember any additional details from her abduction experience. Paul was convinced it was because the aliens were able to bypass his defenses and regain control of the implant that controlled her mind. Dr. Sprinkle blamed the volatile atmosphere. After the session, Dr. Sprinkle quickly called for a taxi and left. This time, there were no fond farewells or promises of another session. Paul just coldly watched as Dr. Sprinkle hurried out the front door. But Paul was undeterred by what he perceived to be Sprinkle's defection from the cause. He wouldn't abandon Myrna the way Dr. Sprinkle had. Using his contacts from the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization, Paul began to communicate with a hypnotist named James Harder. By day, Harder was a University of California at Berkeley engineering professor. By night, he was a UFO researcher who specialized in hypnotizing abduction victims. Paul Benowitz and Dr. Harder were a match made in heaven. Harder wasn't put off by Paul's extreme theories, and soon the two of them started taking Myrna to different locations that they thought might block the alien's control over her mind. It didn't occur to Paul and Dr. Harder that what they were putting Myrna through bordered on abuse. From their point of view, they were pioneering new methods in studying alien abductions. After Paul's work with Myrna concluded in August 1980, she moved to Northern California. Her experience with Paul and Dr. Harder had turned her off to any further investigation into what had happened to her. But Paul was just getting started with his UFO investigations. He spent the next few months obsessively filming the lights over Kirtland Air Force Base. In total, he collected over two hours of footage. When he shared these findings with Valdez, 
They agreed that it was certainly possible that whoever was responsible for the mutilations was working from somewhere deep in the surrounding wilderness. It would be the perfect location for a secret government facility away from prying eyes and curious onlookers. Paul was also certain that the lights presented a grave security threat and wanted to present his evidence to the top brass at Kirtland. Valdez was opposed to the idea. He didn't trust the military. But on October 24, 1980, Paul called Kirtland-based security commander Ernest Edwards. After Paul explained what he had been observing, Edwards' interest was piqued, and he assigned Paul's case to Special Agent Richard Doty of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, or Air Force OSI. Founded in 1948 and still in operation today, Air Force OSI has jurisdiction over all criminal and security investigations at United States Air Force facilities. Doty got Paul on the phone and asked him to describe exactly what he had observed around the Kirtland base. Paul told him about the lights he had seen and recorded, although he decided not to reveal yet that he suspected they were alien spacecraft. Doty decided he should take Paul's case seriously. Although Paul's story sounded insane, his work at Thunder Scientific Labs made him a respected scientist in the community. Doty figured it was better to err on the side of caution than to dismiss what could potentially be a security issue. Paul took Doty on a tour of Thunder Scientific, the lab that he owned, and it was there that he told the Air Force OSI officer about the strange lights and radio signals. Just like Commander Edwards, Doty thought there was some merit to what Paul was telling him. When he got back to his office, he wrote a report recommending a meeting between Paul and base security officers, scientists, and command-level personnel. Before scheduling the meeting, Doty's superiors asked him to visit Paul at his house to get a first-hand look at Paul's setup. Since Doty didn't have the expertise to understand the technical aspects of Paul's equipment, they asked him to bring along a physicist named Lou Miles. As the chief scientist and director of the Kirtland Test and Evaluation Center, Dr. Miles was certainly qualified to evaluate Paul's methods. He also had a significant interest in UFOs as a scientific phenomenon. Doty and Miles visited the Benowitz household on October 26, 1980. There was no sign of the paranoid version of Paul that Dr. Sprinkle had encountered in June. By all appearances, Paul was a stable, rational person. As Paul showed them around his house, the Kirtland men expected to find some home video equipment and perhaps a ham radio. They got much more than they bargained for. When they entered Paul's home laboratory, Doty and Miles were astounded to find extremely sophisticated equipment. There were high-tech oscilloscopes, energy meters, and a massive reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder capable of around-the-clock recording. It was clear that Paul wasn't playing around. Paul couldn't believe that Doty and Miles were actually taking him seriously. As he showed Miles his equipment and played him his best quality video and audio recordings, Doty hung back, presumably to let the two scientists talk shop. What Paul didn't realize was that Doty had brought a small camera and was quietly taking photos of everything Paul was showing them. Before Doty and Miles left, 
Paul gave them copies of three of his best stills and 8mm footage of the UFOs to show their superiors. They returned to Kirtland where they developed Doty's photos and showed them to Commander Edwards along with the materials Paul had given them. While they both were impressed with Paul's technical abilities, neither Doty nor Miles thought there was any security risk or unidentified objects in what Paul showed them. In their opinion, his evidence showed nothing more than a few lights in the sky and strange noises recorded on tape. Edwards disagreed. He called up Paul and asked him to come to Kirtland and give a briefing to senior personnel on November 10th, 1980. Paul was over the moon. On the day of the meeting, Paul gathered his various photos, films, and records and drove over to the base. He was led to an impressive meeting room filled with men who had even more impressive titles. Base Commander Brigadier General William Brookshire was there, as was Base Air Force OSI head Major Thomas Say, along with four unspecified colonels and scientists from the Phillips Weapons Lab located at Kirtland. To Paul's surprise, neither Richard Doty nor Lou Miles was there. He wondered if somehow their superiors had decided that they didn't need to know what was going to be discussed. Paul realized he should explain the technical aspects of his work before jumping into his UFO theories. He described how he was able to pick up the signals coming from the base and the techniques he had used to record the strange lights he was seeing. So far, so good. Everyone seemed interested in what he was saying. Paul could see that they were impressed with his technological prowess. Paul showed them the photos he had taken and played a few recordings of the signals he had intercepted. As the strange sounds played over the speakers, several of the gathered officials leaned forward in their seats. Paul smiled to himself. This was going better than he could have ever dreamed. He decided it was time to drop the hammer. Paul took a deep breath and announced his theory that the lights he was seeing and the transmissions he was intercepting were alien in origin. Several of the men looked at each other and shook their heads in disgust. Paul tried to soldier on, but he had lost the room. He could see the derision in their eyes. By the end of the meeting, only Major Say and a few others remained. Paul was dejected. It seemed that all of his work had been for naught. He knew he probably wouldn't get this opportunity again. This was his only chance to ask the Air Force for help investigating the UFOs. But Major Say was more receptive to his presentation than Paul realized. He informed Paul that while the Air Force wouldn't be able to directly help him with his investigation, they hoped he would continue his research. Once he got home, Paul excitedly called up Officer Valdez to tell him the news. In Paul's mind, Major Say had confirmed he was on the right track. He told Valdez that they might actually be able to identify the strange lights as alien spacecraft and hopefully get to the bottom of the cattle mutilations as well. Valdez was a little more skeptical. Although the circumstances behind the cattle mutilations were certainly strange, Valdez couldn't bring himself to buy into Paul's extraterrestrial theories. And as a seasoned law enforcement officer, he found it hard to believe that a high-ranking member of the Air Force had encouraged Paul. 
But after everything they had seen, both men were convinced that there was a secret facility nestled somewhere in the mountains of Dulce. The question now was how to find it. On June 14, 1981, Officer Valdez was alerted that another mutilated cow had been found at Manuel Gomez's ranch. He arrived at an all-too-familiar site. The cow was missing seemingly random body parts and was completely devoid of any blood. But as he examined the scene, he found something stranger. Not far from the carcass, Valdez found wrapped packets of radar chaff, a form of stealth technology in which aluminum shavings are dispersed behind an aircraft in order to block it from being tracked by radar. Normally, the small aluminum shavings are spread over such a wide area that they're essentially impossible to detect. But something with these packets of chaff must have malfunctioned, as they were still intact. Investigators were able to identify that this specific type of chaff was used to block the frequency of the radar observatory in Longmont, Colorado. Valdez was confused. Longmont was almost 400 miles away. Why would the aircraft drop chaff blocking radar pings from this distant facility when Kirtland's radar was so much closer? It made no sense, unless the craft had been sent from Kirtland. Valdez shared this suspicion with Paul, whose predilection for conspiracy theories kicked into overdrive. Paul made a shocking suggestion. What if it wasn't aliens or humans behind the cattle mutilations? What if they were somehow working together? But there was just one problem with that theory. If the Air Force was involved with the mutilations, why would Major Say encourage Paul's research? Valdez reminded Paul that the Air Force had yet to actually do anything to help other than to encourage Paul to continue his investigation. He wondered if perhaps they were letting Paul keep his investigation going as a way to keep tabs on him. There were no new developments in the case until about a month later, when Paul received a call that would change everything. The call was from a fellow UFO researcher named Bill Moore. He said he had come across something that he thought Paul would be very interested in, but wouldn't divulge any details until they met face to face. Intrigued, Paul invited Moore to come visit him at his office. Moore arrived a few days later, clearly nervous about something. Paul asked him what all the fuss was about. Moore asked if there was somewhere they could go where they wouldn't be overheard. Paul suggested they talk in one of his office's supply closets. Just to play it safe, Moore grabbed a radio and turned the volume all the way up to counter any listening devices that might have been planted nearby. Once they were sure they wouldn't be overheard, Moore handed Paul a document titled Project Aquarius. Moore told Paul it came from the 7602nd Air Intelligence Group in Virginia who was tasked with investigating UFO reports. The paper was a detailed analysis of the photos and 8mm film Paul had given to Richard Doty and Lou Miles. While the paper said some of the material was inconclusive, Paul's eyes were drawn to the analysis on the second photo he had provided. It read, quote, Negative number two, depicting cylinder-shaped, unidentified aerial object in upper left portion of the photo. 
film found to be unaltered. Film showed object to be consistent with relative size of fixed objects. Conclusion, legitimate negative of unidentified aerial object. Bolton-Reinfeld method did not reveal visible markings on object. At the bottom of the paper, there was a paragraph that read, quote, Benowitz is being monitored by NASA INS, who request that all future evidence be forwarded to them through AFOS IVOE. Because of a chance of public exposure, no knowledgeable personnel with special purpose access will be provided. Continue to receive assistance from individuals mentioned in your message. Because of the sensitivity of this case, request that they be thoroughly debriefed at regular intervals." End quote. Paul couldn't believe what he was seeing. He was holding physical proof that the Air Force had taken his claim seriously. But if Paul knew who had given Moore the Project Aquarius document, he wouldn't have been so happy. Bill Moore was anything but an ally to Paul and Officer Valdez's cause. In fact, Moore had been sent by the very people they were trying to expose, and his mission was to dismantle the entire case Paul and Valdez had built. Next week on Extraterrestrial, we'll follow Paul Benowitz and Officer Valdez as their investigation is threatened by sinister government forces and as Paul's mental health continues to teeter on the edge. You can listen to Extraterrestrial and all of ParCast's other shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week. Extraterrestrial was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Liebeskind. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Extraterrestrial is written by Alex Benedon and stars Bill Thomas and Tim Johnson. 